My guest today on stages is Grace Barnes. In a career that has encompassed directing, playwriting, teaching and academia, she has championed the female voice in storytelling. Working as an associate or resident director on original productions of Sunset Boulevard, Martin Gare and The Witches of Eastwick, she has had a seat at the birth of seminal works of musical theatre and observed up close the creatives as they crafted such works. She was even a presence in the initial weeks of Miss Saigon on Broadway. We began by discussing the show that first caught her attention and subsequently seduced her into wanting to work in the theatre. I suppose it would be Evita. And I think it would be Evita because it's the first show that I remember seeing. And I would have been taken to see that by my parents, so I would have been about 12, maybe 13. It's the first time I realised what a director did. And I can vividly remember, do you remember that opening sequence when they've got... The funeral. The funeral, and they've got... The people on stage are mirroring what's been seen in the, in the papers that's on the screen. And I remember thinking, that's, that's brilliant. That's just incredible. Who, who did that? And sort of getting out the programme at the interval and going, Hal Prince, oh, that, that's the director. OK, that's what a director does. And just, I have a vivid memory of the bit in the beginning with the three different groups that keep... You've got the aristocrats and the, is it the workers and the army. And they're just all touching but not quite. But I, I, perhaps also maybe to a 13-year-old, you know, that Prince uh, employed a lot of uh, that epic theatre, Brechtian staging there. So I, I suppose it would be different to anything that you'd seen before. It would have, because I can remember on, on that same trip, the other two things we saw was the Black and White Minstrel Show and Annie, because Annie had opened at the same time. And I was desperate to see Annie. But you're right, maybe it, was the, maybe it was the grandeur of Evita that I remember. I mean, I distinctly remember all the Riviera, um, the Diego murals round, round the outside of the Pross Arch. And, and I remember that scene with the generals. Do you remember the generals in the rocking chairs? Yeah. And, and it was so simple that I went, he's un- understanding that what the director had done was to take something really simple like musical chairs and make it into... This is, this is what politics is. This, is. this is how dirty the politics are, that you stand up, you turn around, you're out. That is the brilliance of Prince. I mean, and that's... I always felt that with Phantom of the Opera, and Phantom was a show I did. It's not one of my favourite shows, I must admit, but if you watch Phantom, the brilliance of Phantom is the directing because there's actually not much there. No. There's not much subtext. No. There's not much characterisation. They're all fairly one-dimensional characters, but you come out thinking you've just seen the most brilliant thing ever. And that's the direction. And it's, it's the set. The set is beautiful. Yeah. But it's his direction that makes it brilliant. Well, I think he does what a director should do, which is interpret the text and bring alive the text in a way that makes it accessible. I mean, that's certainly what he did with Evita. Because if you watch the film of Evita, it's quite complicated. There's a lot... He, Alan Parker tries to get so much in about the political situation and there's bits in the film. Do you remember there's bits in the film when they're going and smashing up the newspaper offices and that you didn't need that in, in the stage. You got that through musical chairs. You got that they were all corrupt mm. and that people were being silenced. So you would have seen uh, Elan Page, I guess. Was this early in the, in the run? Do you remember who you saw as a Vita? It must have been. 
David Essex. It was certainly David Essex because he was, I mean, I was 13. I just thought David Essex was absolutely to die for. I don't know who was Perron. It would, it would have been the original company. But whether or not she was on, because she only, when it opened Vita, she only played six shows. Hmm. She must have been. Yeah. I mean, it was summer. She wouldn't have been, it wasn't a matinee. Have you managed to um, catch it ever again in another production, or I did. Have I you saw worked the, on one. No, I'd love to. I'd love to direct it because I think that a pro- production of Evita directed by a woman would be a very, very different production. I always think that about Gypsy as well. Is that Gypsy? You know, Mama Rose is always interpreted as this kind of crazy stage muller, but as a woman, I would say, well, this is an uneducated woman who has children to feed. What is she going to do? She can't do anything else. And I think you'd get... I think with Evita, I think you'd get a very different interpretation if it was a woman directing it. I know that after I saw Evita, I did go and read all the biographies. I was so fascinated by this woman. And the pair of them were just so corrupt. It's it's horrific what they were up to that you don't really get in the musical. And interestingly... After the film, I think they sort of sanitised the musical a little bit when they added that, you must love me. It's almost trying to humanise the pair of them. Uh, going to the theatre was obviously a, a family affair. Um, well, no, I lived in Shetland. So I lived in very, very far north of Scotland. Right. So when we went to the theatre, it would be when uh, we were on family holidays, which tended to be, well, summer or Easter. And we would, if we were going through London, because we, we, we usually went to France or Spain or Greece or somewhere. And I'm trying to think how we got there. I think we used to drive in those days. It was a hell of a long drive. We would put the car on, on the train from the north of Scotland to London, and then I think we drove from London. And so we always had a night or two nights in London. And my father loved theatre, so we would go and see a musical. So, so a young girl from Shetland on, on the <laughs> Easter and Christmas vacation seeing the theatre. So... Those theatre visits from that your family took you to, that inspired the desire to have a career in... Well, it's bizarre. I don't really know where it came from. I mean, my dad was a pianist, and he loved musical theatre and loved operetta and opera. And he had taken his parents. He, he was an only child, and, and it had been obviously a very part, big part of the relationship that he'd had with his parents was taking them to the theatre as it is with us. Um, and he had a record collection that was all the musicals and all the operators. And growing up in Shetland, there was no television. So I used to play these records, and I used to listen to this, this camp old musical thing called Countess Maritza. Yes. That I loved. I was absolutely loved Countess Maritza. And there was another one I can't, I can't remember. And Dad and I used to laugh about the gypsy violinist that would come in. There'd always be this gypsy violinist. And I loved these records, and I used to play them all the time. And I realised that this was a whole story being told in song. I loved Oliver. Oliver, that, that cast album got played over and over and over. But my dad also played the piano and was the musical director for the local amateur company. So very early on, I think I would, I would have been in the chorus of a pantomime when I was about ten through his involvement with the, with the, with the theatre company. I don't know how I worked out that I wanted to direct. I don't, I don't know how that came about. Uh, did you listen to other genres of music? 
No, I didn't. Right. I was just, I listened to, I mean, it's kind of, God, you talk about the geeky kid. The other one I was obsessed with was Noel Coward. I was obsessed right. with Noel Coward and Gertrude Lawrence, and Dad had a recording of Private Lives with the two of them. And I used to play that over and over and over, and I could quote, we'd, it sounds so pretentious, but it wasn't. But my dad and I used to quote Noel Coward to each other across the kitchen table, just because we loved it. Yeah. And I loved, I think what I loved about Coward, particularly that recording of Private Lives, was the rhythm. Mm. I just loved the rhythm of the way they spoke and the rhythm of the lines. It sort of seduced me. And something like that, I guess, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, uh, perhaps ignited the passion for playwriting. Well, I wrote a musical. <laughs> this oh. is so terrible. When I was about 13 or 14, I wrote a musical about Noel Coward and Gertrude Lawrence, and I called it... <laughs> I did. Because <laughs> I read everything. And I called it... Um, you can call me Gertie, because that was apparently the first word. She, according to Noel Coward, he always says that he met her at a train station and they were going to they were going to be in some show together. They were children. They were like 12 or 13. And she told him a filthy joke, which he didn't understand. And she said, you can call me Gertie. So I thought this was apocryphal, so I was going to... My, my musical was called You Can Call Me Gertie. And it started off with these two children meeting on a train station. Give us a description of Shetland. Now, I think well, Shetland... Well, you've seen it. It's on, isn't it on the ABC? <laughs> a, well, it's a TV series, isn't it? Well, that's it. It looks very bleak. It is it's very cold. bleak. It's freezing. It's, there's no trees because you can never get three miles away from the sea so that the earth is too salty. I think that's why it's... I think it's also because there is a Force 9 headwind blowing 300 days of the year. Wow. Um, it's very isolated. Um but it's where all the North Sea oil and all the North Sea gas comes ashore, so it's now very wealthy. It wasn't when I was living there. When I, when I was growing up there, I think there was only a boat twice a week. The boat is 14 hours to get to the nearest city, and there was one plane a day. And in the winter, I mean, summer is bad for fog. If the fog kicks in, it's in for 10 days. Nothing's moving. What sort of population... I think it's about 21,000. Okay, so the it's a reasonable town, size. Well, the, yeah, but that's, there's but a lot of islands. The, island, right? the main town is about 8,000 people. And people who come in from the country areas will say, I don't know how you can stand living in the town. It's so busy. <laughs> and it's, it's 8,000 people. So it was very... It was a very idyllic childhood because, apart from the weather, obviously, um... Because there was no crime. Because nobody would get away with anything. Because they just... You all knew each other. Well, and they would just close the airport and wait it out. No one's going anywhere. So there was never any real... I mean, I know people say that, oh, we never locked our doors. They go, well, we didn't. I mean, I don't think we ever had a house key. Do you remember any great crimes of the day or...? There was a burglary once when I was at school. And I think I was in final news of school, I would have been 16 or 17, and a house got burgled. But everybody at school knew who'd done it. It was just a case of finding him because he'd gone up into the hills. And it was a case of they just waited for him to come down. At some point he was going to get cold enough, and he did. <laughs> and he admitted it. He went, that was it. <laughs> because oh. people people are nosy in those, you know that, yeah, those yeah. little towns, people look out the windows, they'd seen who it was. Neighbourhood watch. Yeah, they'd seen who it was. Yeah. Well, what about artistically? Did you, you I had that? a teacher, I did have a teacher in, I probably would have been 
second year in high school, so was at 14, who realised that I was obsessed with theatre and would sort of casually come up to me in reading class in English and say, you should read this, and it would be the complete works of Tennessee Williams, and then he gave me Arthur Miller, and he said, you should be reading this. And he fed me the playwrights to be reading because he, he had realised that I was just obsessed with theatre. And when we read plays in, in the class, he always gave me the leading role. So when did you escape? How old were you? I escaped at 17. I was out of there so fast. And was that, <laughs> that for university? or No. God, do I admit this? You probably don't know this, Pete. No. I left to go to the Italia Conti Stage School, which is where Noel Coward had been. Fantastic. Because in those days, uh, when I say in those days, what would that have been, 82? You couldn't go and learn how to direct. You could go to somewhere like RADA, but you had to be over 21. There was certainly no... I don't think there was many... I don't think there was any directing courses, but places like RADA or Lambda wouldn't take you to your 21. Um, and I loved musical theatre. So Italia Conti did a diploma. And I went to Italia Conti, and I knew that I wanted to direct, but it was a, an acting school, so I don't quite know why I went there. I think because I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. Was this in Glasgow? No, this was in London. Right. So I arrived in London at 17. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Of course. I got myself a Saturday job in Harrods because a friend and I said, oh, we're a bit short of cash, oh, we should go get a job. And she said, well, let's go to Harrods. And we thought, yeah, why don't we go to Sweden? I had a Saturday job in Harrods. I had a Saturday job in Harrods and I used all that money to go and see shows. And I saw musicals. I discovered the National because it was you could get standing room at the National. But this particular friend, who I'm still friendly with, she loved ballet and I had never seen ballet. So she and I used to go to the ENO. And you'd queue up for the ENO, and it was like remember those old films when they all run up the back stairs? Yeah. That was that was still happening in London. And you'd queue and you'd pay three pounds and you'd stand at the back of the upper upper circle. Um, and we saw opera. I think we saw a lot of one act of operas. We'd go on board now and we'd leave. <laughs> How long was the Italia Conti course? Is it a three-year course, one-year course? It was three years, but I had set all the exams by the end of the second year, so I left because it was kind of an appointment waiting for another year. And also, by then, I was very aware that it was a performing arts course and I didn't want to perform. I wanted to direct, but I didn't know how to get into it. I didn't know how to do that because there was no way of doing it then, particularly in musicals. Were there any teachers that were able to guide you or, or give you advice, teacher, point you in the right direction? Yeah, one teacher spotted that I wanted to do it and he suggested he said go, go via stage management which was kind of a route then and and I did I went and um, started working backstage in, in West End Theatre um, because I thought that would be a way in and I did courses I did a you know like a lighting course and I did a design course, just to sort of get a basic understanding, because there wasn't, I, I don't even remember there being stage management courses then, there must have well, been. Probably, well, they probably, perhaps, but not as developed as, I mean, what year are we talking? Early 80s. Right. I'm sure there were stage management courses, but I didn't want to go and do three years because I didn't want to be a stage manager. I wanted to learn how theatre worked. I wanted to be able to sit out front as a director and be able to say, no, I know what light I need. Um... 
being able to have that conversation with a designer or a, a lighting designer to go, well, I do understand what's possible because then I just, I had a vague notion, but I didn't really, I didn't know the difference between a Fresnel and a profile. And I remember going and learning that and going, oh, okay, that's interesting. Now I know that. Now I know what's possible. I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages. Stages is an opportunity for me to talk to a variety of people whose professional life is about connecting with an audience. Listen to company manager Michael Norman as he recalls a career in the UK when he worked as a model. And I earned myself a reputation of being the little little catalogue trouser model. And I could never work out why they took so long. I'm just putting a pair of jeans on me, and there's no, no face in, in shot. I have to catch a train up to Manchester, and they'd house us there, and da 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 da. And they would spend about an hour on this raised platform and put this pair of really awful high waisted, bell bottom flared jeans on, and put double sided tape around the hem of the, of the jean on top of these uh, built up platforms of shoes. When I think about it, and I have to put my hand in, and of course you had to hold your hands up, and all the blood would eventually, after holding that position for an hour and a half, you know, you'd start to get, and you couldn't move. So I would never drink the night before, and I learnt to uh, also, uh, so you wouldn't have a visible panty line. I had to wear uh, a pantyhose, so <laughs> it was very strange getting ready for the shoot. And, um, and a couple of lighting courses, and, and they took you straight in as a, an ASM? I think if you were... Interested in... If you were passionate, and I was clearly passionate, yeah. and I I wasn't a half-wit, and I was able to talk knowledgeably about playwrights and theatre, um, that seemed to do the trick. Well, I guess a lot of training, perhaps at the time, was on the job training. Oh, absolutely, you know, was. taking in yeah. apprentices and yeah. um, and an ASM in London then was not the same as an ASM here or or in America, where the ASMs didn't call. The ASM were basically uh, you were a crew member, but you had the title of assistant stage manager. And you, you, the the thing I loved about it was I got to watch rehearsals, and Trevor Nunn was still directing it because it was the new company going in. And I would stand in the wings watching Trevor Nunn going, wow. And Colm Wilkinson was still in it. And I was very young. Yeah. But I was aware that I was on something very special. Right. Even then, I mean, I think it, had, it, it would have been running a year if they were doing the cast change. But it wouldn't have been at the Palace for a year because it had been at the Barbican to begin with. And they were still changing it. It hadn't opened on Broadway, so there were still... Things were being changed. I mean, when I went in... Davros still had the whole song. Or did he? No, he didn't. But he sang something else in Act 2, but that got cut. They they were still fiddling with it, so that was interesting. Is that what brought you to Australia, the the Les Mis experience? No, I... When I was 20... my, my, My grandmother, my nana, put money into trust. Not huge amounts of money. I'm not a trust fund. Don't, you know, don't think like that. Uh for myself and my sisters to pay for education and she was a very I I think she was a very wonderful open-minded woman because education included travel so I had this money and we had to write to the trust if we wanted to to use this money it paid paid my fees at Italian Conte for example 
it paid my sister to go to university. So I had a little bit of my allocation was left. And I wrote, I remember writing to the trustees and saying, I feel that my education would be enhanced if I travelled. So I got £500 or something, whatever was left, and I came to Australia. I decided I wanted to go around the world. And I, came, I was also aware that there was no way I was going to be a director if I stayed in the UK. Absolutely no way it was going to happen. Because, because you're a woman? Or? Because I was a woman. Right. That just was not going to happen. And I had a meeting with, I think he was a casting director, I can't remember, at the National, and he laid it out. He said, you're not Oxbridge. You're not listed about five private schools, public schools. I said, you're not a man. He said, you will never work. And he listed these theatre companies. He said, you won't work at the RSC. You won't work at the National. You won't work, I don't think Dunmore was there, but it was places like the Young Vic. He just listed them. And he said, you, you won't. And he said that, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm being very blunt. And I said, no, that's great. That's kind of what I needed to hear. I don't remember seeing any women's names as directors or even on creative teams. I could have been wrong, but I don't remember it. Yeah. Certainly not. Maybe in musicals that had come from Broadway, because I think there was a longer tradition in musical theatre of women being being in the creative team from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, if you think back to you know uh, Comden, Betty Comden, Dorothy Fields, Agnes DeMille, you know Graziella Danielle, there were women there who I think had been in who had been in musicals for decades in America, so they were much more used to it. And there was, there was a wonderful woman I always wanted to write about called Trudy Ritter. And Trudy Ritter was an orchestrator who did, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was all of Rodgers and Hammerstein, and they said that you could tell her sound. She was so unique, and that the, when this woman died, they dimmed the lights on Broadway. And I go, nobody, nobody remembers that. No. But so there were women on Broadway in musical theatre from way back, from the 30s. But that had never happened in the UK. And I thought, as an ASM backstage, I went, I'm, I'm never, this is never going to happen. Uh, I'll go and see what's happening in Australia. And by then it was, it was 88, because there was so much on the TV about the bicentennial. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe I'll go to Australia. So I went to Australia. Um, and studied. I know you, you did the. Um, well, the I'd always course. I'd always written. I'd always been a playwright, and I wanted to write for film. And it was the same story. I applied to Beaconsfield, which was the British film school, and I remember being interviewed and being slightly taken aback because I didn't expect them to be so vicious, and I was slightly taken aback as to why they were being so rude, and. Then I got this lovely letter from the head of the school after, after this interview that I thought was... I was going, oh, why are they having such a go at me? Um, and I think I was a bit belligerent back. And um, I got a letter. In those days, we still got letters from the head of the school saying, we were very impressed with you. Would you reapply? And I thought, oh, reapply? You're absolutely vile to me. But I think it was the thing that they did. Yeah. And again, it was the same thing. There were no women. But I, I wanted to write for film. I never wanted to direct film. And so I came to Stuart and I applied for afters. And by then I was ready for the interview and the interview was exactly the same. They were just vile. One, one of them, I remember who he was, but I'm not going to name him, said at one point, well, I don't think you can write. 
And I said, oh, OK, well, I think you're wrong. So it was sort of on that level. Is, it, is that a rule or a test, do you think, to see how resilient you are or how, mu- how much you wanted? Then. I think it was then. Because mm. then they only took 12 people right. a year and hundreds were applying. And I think the same went on at NIDA, RADA, Lambda. I think, I mean, you remember... Oh, fame. Remember the original film of fame yes, where they, yes. they, they, you've got to break them down and build them up. And yeah. I think that was maybe a thing of the 80s was right. let's bully them and the ones who the ones who survive are the ones who'll make it. And Well, the industry is about resilience. Well, it's about a thick skin. It's it about is, believing in yourself. It is. It? And I, 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 there is a, it does kind of make sense that if you can't, Take it from someone sitting across a table at you saying, well, I think this is a problem. You're not going to last very long in the industry. There are some brutal directors out there. So when did you go to Broadway? Because you worked on the original Miss Saigon as well, didn't you? I did. And that was a bit... How did that happen? That was because when I was at film school, we had to do a secondment. And you know me, Pete. I was a bit belligerent about the secondment because they kept saying, well, you have to go to Neighbours. I said, I'm not going to Neighbours. Well, then you have to go to Home and Away. I said, I'm not going to Home and Away. I'd never even seen these things. Huh. I said, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, you know, I had visions in my mind of Brideshead Revisited. That was the kind of thing that I wanted to go to. Yes. And they said, no, 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 you have to do this. And my head of students got so frustrated. He said, I don't care where you go, but you have to do a secondment in your second year. Otherwise, you can't go on to third year. And he said, just go and organise something. So I pulled in a few contacts and I went to Phantom of the Opera, which was opening in Melbourne. And my head of students said, you're at film school, how are we going to make this work? And I said, well, I'll write a musical for my third year film. And he said, fine, great, that, that, that'll do it. So we wrote this whole thing saying that this is, I was going to write a musical. I did instantly write a short film musical um, for my third year graduating film. Um, and it was imperative that I went and learned about musical theatre. So I went off to Melbourne and did... I was Hal Prince's assistant, which meant I booked him restaurants. Right. And I took his notes, and it was... it was. That must have been extraordinary to have a... I just was... I can remember... Sit at the master's feet. I sat, and he kept saying, he kept saying, I want Grace sitting next to me, and I'd go, ooh, ooh. And I can remember a journalist coming in, must be somebody from the age, taking a picture of Hal Prince and me sitting next to him and me going, oh, God, and I'll never see that photograph. <laughs> and he was... He was so kind. He was so generous in the fact that here was somebody who clearly was obsessed and clearly wanted to learn and kind of knew what they were talking about. And he would come at lunchtime and he'd say, honey, do you want to hear about my musical theatre experience? And I'd go, yes, Mr Prince. I was called him Mr Prince. Yes, Mr Prince. And he'd tell these stories about when he produced Pyjama Game and this happened and this happened and he'd say, George Abbott, and he'd be talking about these legends and I would be there like a sponge just soaking it up. All of that... um reading as a, as a child of, of record covers and biographies and, and, and all that sort of thing. This was the man who directed Evita. Yeah. The show that had made such an effect, you know, had had such an effect on me. And he was just so generous. And when he left, he gave me his book that had just come out. I think it was, it wasn't an autobiography, it was a biography. And he signed it. And I still, I still know what it says. <laughs> it says, Dear Grace... This is to this is so you understand how your friend, the underlined friend, managed to have a career in musical theatre. I hope you do the same. I mean, how lovely is that? That's that's lovely. It I was mean, so lovely. It's great when you meet your heroes and they don't disappoint. Yeah, 
And and he was fantastic on Phantom. I mean, he it must have been about the fourth or fifth production by then. Mm. And he knew what the notes were. And I, I remember I used to take the notes and he would say, oh, yeah, I know what that note is before they even do it. He said, they'll make the same mistake. And I thought, that's really interesting that the same actors from different continents would make the same mistake. Well, not mistakes, but, but would get the things wrong. Um, and from that, I got to go to Miss Saigon in New York as a production assistant. And Hal Prince, I remember Hal saying, honey, honey, you're coming to New York. And I was going, yeah, yeah. I was still slightly shell-shocked. And he said, um, I'll take you to lunch. And he did. He took right. me to lunch in the Rockefeller Center. Going, this is my friend. He was introducing me to all these people. And I was kind of going, God, this is... This. He was so generous. So I went and did... I had to defer from film school because I think my head of students by then had had enough. And he said, no, you can't have another three months off. You have to defer. So I deferred for a year. And I went to New York and did Miss Saigon. I was production assistant, which was just amazing. I mean, that was... Had it, were you there for the preparation of it or had it opened? Oh, no, I was there for the whole rehearsal period. Right. So you were there around the time where equity was kicking up a fuss oh, about... yeah, I've got photographs of it. Right. We would stand, I can remember, a riot. Sorry, I should finish that. The, 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 the equity kicking up a fuss about Jonathan Rice coming into play... Jonathan Price coming into play the um, no, see the that had all no, but that had all been done by then. Right, we'd got over that because Jonathan was in and we were rehearsing. Oh, rehearsing, yes, yes. But what happened was, and look this up, but I'm pretty sure it was B. D. Wong. There was something to do with B. D. Wong, who had played M. Butterfly. Yes, who was very much against this show, and. We got news that people were infiltrating the audience. And this is previews. And it would get to a particular point in the middle of the heat is on in Saigon. And from all over the theatre, these women would stand up and start screaming, this show is sexist, this show is racist. And they'd have to be frog-marched out by, um, by the ushers. And then they did boycott one night. They did try to, and that was, I'm sure it was BD Wong, but that was to do with Jonathan. And Jonathan, I can remember, it was really funny, Jonathan was fascinated by it. So he snuck out the back door and stood in a, a telephone booth watching this, this riot with all these people holding up pictures of him saying he shouldn't be on. And I'm standing next to him and he was going, get pictures, take pictures. I have all these pictures of these people standing as boycott, you know, all around stage door saying Jonathan Price shouldn't be in the show. And he's watching them from across the street um, in, in a telephone booth. So there was yeah, much opposition, obviously, after he was given permission to, to go to the States and do it. Well, it would never happen, no. No, no, no. Um, of course, he went on to win the Tony. And he was fantastic. It was fantastic. But it was the first time that, I guess, the issue was raised yeah, about I think um, colourblind casting. Well, and I think it was possibly... I mean, you think of all those King, King and I's... And, and the replacing of your yeah. Brinner and, 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 and the Caucasian never, actors. Who... And I think there was, I think it had probably been discussed concerning African Americans, but I don't think the conversation had ever been had about Asian actors, Asian American actors. Mm. Probably because there hadn't been that many shows. There would have been what Flower Drum Song, King and I, yep. and that was probably it. Yep. Whereas there was a whole genre at that time that was established as the black musical. 
So maybe it was something that it needed the voice of B.D. Wong. It needed somebody like that to stand up and go, this isn't, this isn't on. There are actors here who could do it. You can follow Stages on Instagram and our Facebook page, where you can catch up with our archive and our latest guests, like Jane Beckett, dancer, choreographer and teacher, who recounts a close encounter with Mikhail Baryshnikov. I remember going into class one day at Adelaide Festival and I, I don't know, I was just tired. I think you're always tired as a dancer. I was on the floor, warming up in a split, sort of like, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> lying on the floor and, and I heard, you know, teacher come in and so I sort of picked myself off and I grabbed my bag and I just sort of, I thought, oh, there's an empty space and I threw my bag down and I, I stood and so you always start with your left hand on the bar. So I turn, put my left hand on the bar and I look ahead of me and Barishnikov is standing in front of me and I freaked out. And I, the only reason I freaked out was because when we turn around to do the other side, my left foot wasn't as good as my right foot. So he would be looking at my bad foot, <laughs> not my good foot. So I remember we're doing something and I'm in an attitude and I see the teachers on the other side of the room and I'm in a balance. The next thing I felt this hand grab hold of my left foot and twist it into the right position. And I'm, my brain's going, my brain's going, who's there, who's there, going on all of a sudden, I went, oh, it's Barishnikov. Correcting <laughs> he just, you. He just touched my foot. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but they were, they were amazing. So you, you finished with Miss Saigon on Broadway, returned to Australia? Finished my degree at film school. <laughs> yeah. Didn't make the musical. But, but when does the career as a, a resident director on the big commercial musicals in it Australia... It would have been that time, you? because when I was at film school, I had a job dressing at the opera. And I got talking one night to a man who I didn't know who he was. And he was uh, backstage and... And he was talking to me, and I was dressing... Oh, no, I remember this now. There was this mad woman. I can't can't remember her name. I really can't. I'm not being discreet. Um, Who was from Bulgaria or somewhere, who was coming out to play, to sing the lead in something that I was dressing. And the head of wardrobe said to me, do you speak any languages? And I said, I speak French. I mean, I had high school French. And she said, we need to deal with this woman because she doesn't speak any English. So I was dressing this mad woman... Um, who had the most incredible temper. I mean, she never took it out of me, but she had an assistant that she travelled with. <laughs> Poor woman. Um, and I had come out of the dressing room when all this shouting was going on and I had been talking to her in French. And this man who was sitting on the couch started talking to me and asking me all about who I was and why I was there. And I said, I'm a dresser. My, you know, and I said, I'm at film school, I want to do this. And he turned out to be... Now, I don't know what his title was. His name is David Crooks, who sadly died a couple of years ago. And David Crook said, oh, you should meet Moffat. And Moffat was the artistic director. And he said, well, you know, you should come here and be an assistant director. And he said, do you read music? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what we require of assistant directors then, I don't think they still do now, is you had to speak a language and you had to be able to read, you had to score read, which I did. And I went and met Moffat and Moffat offered me assistant director on Fiddle on the Roof. I think they were very impressed that I had got this gig to go to 
um, New York with Miss Saigon, which wasn't as impressive as it sounded. I, mean, I could make it sound very impressive, but I was a production assistant. Um, and I think they were quite impressed, and they said, oh, well, come and work for the opera as an assistant director. And I thought, maybe they think I'm the assistant director on Miss Saigon, which I thought, well, I'm not going to say I'm not, because I'd quite you like to it. work at the opera. Yeah. Absolutely. So I got this job at the opera on Fiddle on the Roof. Was that the Max Gillies production? It was the Max Gillies production. Right. I mean, it was years and years ago. Judy Canelli. Yep. So assistant director on that. Yep. So does that mean that you... Or do, do opera companies have a resident director once the They call it a staff director. Well, they call it a staff director. Right. Um, and that's what it is. You're there. You, you have to go when the show is on. But the show's only on two or three times a week. And I did that and I did an opera at the same time. And from there... Where did I go from there? I went to this STC, Into the Woods. There was also, at that time, a lot of talk from the Australia Council about women not being employed as directors, and I think I possibly... Got onto that. Well, I think I was flavor. in the right place at the right yes. time, and I sort of knew what I was doing. I certainly was able to talk about it as if I knew what I was doing. And I think I ticked a box for a lot of people, certainly for the STC. And certainly for the opera. I think I ticked a box. But in retrospect, that's all it was. At the time, I thought that I was really, you know, I thought that I was going to have this career. But I, in now I go, I was purely box ticking. And I did My Fair Lady with the VSO, um, with Rodney Fisher. Um, he was great. That was, a, that, was a, that was a really lovely experience, even though I don't like the show, as you know. Yes. <laughs> it was a very, very lovely experience. And... I was, that was when I was interviewed and, and offered the job on Sunset Boulevard because I went, yeah, I went straight from My Fair Lady onto Sunset Boulevard. And then that, as we know, was pretty short-lived. <laughs> um, well, it must have been a baptism of fire too to be in that role on that particular production because there were troubles with the leading lady um, your musical director, everything. unfortunately... Um, he was killed. ...was killed during the production. But it had the beautiful Hugh Jackman. Yes, Hugh's second musical. Second musical. After Beauty and the yeah. Beast. So Hugh was only 29. And I had my 30th birthday on it. I remember my parents were out. So we were all... We were quite young. I mean, now I think about it going... All these I was children. very young to be in that position. Yeah. And to be in a position on a show that spiralled out of control pretty quickly. And part of the problem was, this is pre-email day, it, everything had to be okayed by Really Useful in London. But that would take two or three days. So we had a woman who was brought out from America to play Betty Schaefer. And we had a German who'd come out from the German production to play Max. God knows why. Um, so we knew that they were leaving. They were on short contracts. But you couldn't get anybody to have the conversation about who was going to replace them. So it was coming up to... Remember, the, it was the adorable Robert Berry, who was the cover for Max, and yes. Robert Berry coming up to me saying, am I on on Monday? And I'd be going... I don't know. I have no idea, <laughs> because nobody has got back to us. So we had... It was very... You couldn't do anything without it being okayed by London. And I think London had kind of probably lost interest in Melbourne way, way, way down the track. It was certainly a production which deserved a longer life, don't you think? It did, but nobody was coming. 
And I have this joke. Well, I could still remember we were in the Regent, and I think we reopened the Regent. And they had this movable, up and up in the dress circle, they had this movable wall. And I can remember I'd be doing cover calls, and I'd look up, and I'd see the grey of the stage manager. I'd go, is that wall moved? And he'd go, yeah, but don't tell the cast. So this wall just kept moving down the dress circle because they kept, nobody was coming. So they had to make it look like it was full. And then we'd go in and I'd go, they've moved the wall down six rows so that it looked like it was full. That nobody was coming. Right. That's so, a problem. Direction by Trevor Nunn, Didn't, composed nobody cared. by nobody cared. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Doesn't, doesn't nobody cared. And it was expensive. I think it was the first show... I mean, you can look this up, but I'm sure it's true to charge $100 a scene. Yeah. Um, and followed by productions of uh, where you're resident of, of Guys and Dolls and... Um... Well, no, I went back to the UK. I went back to the UK for 10 years. Oh, after Sunset? After Sunset. Right. I went back with... I got... When we closed early, <laughs> they said to me, would you like to go to Germany and do the German production? And I thought, no, it really is the last thing I want to do. So I rang my agent, and my agent and I said, OK well, we'll just make this list of outrageous demands so that it looks like I'm being willing, because I didn't want to go, I didn't want to go to Germany. I didn't speak German. Um, and we said, well, we'll ask for this stupid amount of money and I'm only flying business, which I'd never flown, and I want this and I want this. We thought, we're, we're home and dry. So my agent rang me and he said, OK, darling, sit down. He said, <laughs> they've agreed. And I went, no! He said, yeah, they've, they've agreed. And I said, to these ridiculous... I mean, they were ridiculous demands. I sounded like some terrible diva. So I went, oh, well, I'll go. And I was only supposed to be going for two months. And I ended up being there for 14 months. Because the show hadn't had a resident director for about three months. And it was just a complete mess. Nobody knew who covered anything. they just cancelled the show if anybody went off. Um, and from there I went back to the UK. And I did Martin Gare. And then I did Witches of Eastwick in West End. So I did two new shows. We're talking about a phenomenal... Uh, projects that you worked on. They were fantastic. From Les they Mis were. to Phantom to Miss Saigon to Martin was, Gare. I feel that like I was very... I feel... I only sort of recognise it now. I didn't recognise it at the time, that it was that real sort of second golden age of musical theatre, which I, I think we might be heading back into. But there was that period when Claude Michel and Anne Lyon were writing all those shows when it was Sondheim... And I happened to get on some really good projects. And Martin Gare, I mean, that was the other show that I thought is maybe the one I would bring as my special one. Not because it was a great show. There's some beautiful music, but because I had such a good time on it. And there was Claude Michel and Alain, and you're there going, these are the people that brought Les Mis, my God. And they were delightful, and they would almost take us out for dinner, and we toured around the country. You know, you go to these cities and... It was just, it's very different when you tour in the UK. You move every week and you go, I don't know where I am. What, what theatre are we in? And they were always called the Royal or the Grand. <laughs> they were never called anything else. Rather than the Theatre Royal or you're in the Grand. But, you know, you moved every week. It was, remember that film, If This Is Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium? Yes. That's what it's like. You go, if this is Thursday, it must be Nottingham. I don't know where we are. What we should do, really, is for you to describe what the role of a resident director is on a a big musical. What, what, well, it was a role what did that your work exist. day consist of? It was a role that didn't exist until the musical, the mega musical came along. And once the, men, the mega musical came along and it was clear that these shows were going to run for three to five years, there had to be somebody there maintaining it and maintaining an artistic standard. 
So you learn the show in the rehearsal room. You're there as part of the creative team. Whether you are acknowledged as part of the creative team or not depends on the director. So with Eric Schaefer, absolutely. You were, what do you think, Gracie? What do you think? What, what? But if it's, well, I won't say who, but if it's someone else, you just ignore it and you're there to take down the blocking. You learn the show, basically. Right. Um, once you... Once you've done a few, you realise what the pro- you, you realise that when you're in rehearsals, you need to be the person saying, "I need to get the understudies music calls right now," because you've done a few shows and they've come to previews, and somebody will always go off in previews. And usually, once you've done a few, you can work out by day four who's going to be off in previews. You know who you know who you know who's going off, and you have a quiet word to the understudy and say, "You need to start watching this." So the resident director is responsible for maintaining an artistic standard so that the show that you come and see two years down the track is the same show that was on on opening night. It shouldn't be any less. You shouldn't feel cheated with the fact that you've got the third cast and you've seen it two years down the track. It should be as fresh as it was. So you're responsible for understudies, for cast replacements, for one of the things you've got to keep an eye on. I remember Hal Prince telling me this. Keep an eye on the show times. When they're adding minutes on, if you're looking at the show time, you're going, wow, Act Two is now an hour and 15. It used to be an hour and nine. You've got a problem. And you need to work out why you're adding on that. Because it's not applause, why you're adding on that time. You know, it's that kind of thing. You've got to keep it sharp, keep it fresh, nip in the bud the stuff that's going on on stage that shouldn't be going on. Yeah. A lot of it's discipline. A lot of it is social work. It's sort of like, you know, you spot where the problem is and go, okay, here's a problem, we need to go and talk about this, how do we, what, what's going on, does this person need time off? Yes, they do. How do we replace that? It was a lot more interesting 10, 15 years ago when you had big companies. Now it's much smaller. But, I mean, on Sunset we had eight swings. In Germany. We had, right. God, in Germany we had 12 swings. So it was much more interesting because people were off all the time because they have holidays there and you'd be going, okay, who covers this, who covers this, who covers this? So you're having a break from that now? No, I don't think I'm having a break. I think that there is a Well, you've point decided that you've done, you've got out of it what you... It's not, I, I've decided, I loved it, but I did it because I was always of the belief that it would lead me to a directing career and it doesn't. Right. It absolutely doesn't, particularly if you're female in musicals. It doesn't. It's a great way of being in theatre. It's a wonderful, you know, you're creative, you get to do that. I don't want to do it again. And I think increasingly now, I know how this sounds, but you're being asked to assist people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's not assisting Trevor Nunn. Yeah. It's not assisting Hal Prince. It's assisting people who you go, well, this person hasn't even trained and has never done a musical. Why would I... Why would I do that? What am I going to gain from that? Yeah. I also don't think the shows are that good. I don't think shows are as good as they used to be. I mean, maybe that's just age. Being a resident director on a Disney musical is not something that I would find very satisfying. When you want job satisfaction, don't you, with you? Well, you do, because it does take up your life. I mean, you are in there 50 hours a week. And when you're on tour, it is your life. I mean, the last show I did was War Horse, and War Horse was something that I thought was one of the most brilliant pieces of theatre, and I felt very privileged to be a part of War Horse. I mean, it was exhausting, 
but I felt very privileged to have been in that rehearsal because they brought out all the original creatives and to have been in that rehearsal room with people like Toby who did all the movement. I mean, he that man was extraordinary. Mm. And with John Thames, who was the original musician and, and this folk singer who, you know, is a guru apparently. I didn't, we didn't know that. So I felt very privileged to have done that. And I don't, I don't feel the need to do it again. I don't know what I would get out of it. And if I think if I'm not, I don't know what I would put into it. If you're not there because you love it, I don't think you should be, I don't think you should be doing it. Absolutely. So what next for Grace Barnes? I don't know. Well, you're doing a PhD. But I'm sort of finished there. You've written a book. I've written a book. I'm going to write another book. I'm going to write a book about the woman I wrote about for my PhD, who's Mina Wiley, who, as you know, Pete, was the first woman to swim in Olympic Games to represent Australia in Olympic Games, 1912. Um, I would like to be... My, my, my dream job would be to be involved in musical theatre as a dramaturg, as a show fixer. Because I think, I, I think I'm really good at that. And I've also written... I mean, I've written two musicals, and I'd like to write another one. Eric, my friend Eric Schaefer, who runs Signature... In Washington. In Washington. He wants to commission another musical from me. Um, which is always fun, but it doesn't, it doesn't pay the bills. Um, but I'd like to just do that. There are certain shows I'd like to direct. I'd like to direct Fun Home. I'd like to direct Vita. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, certainly not in this country. I don't. I just. I feel in Australia we have not moved on in terms of gender and theatre, particularly musicals. Um, just finishing up, I want to finish with a, a quote from the great Stephen Sondheim talking about theatre directors. He said that too many theatre directors are more interested in serving themselves and the piece that they are working on. I think there's a bit of truth in that, oh, especially with musicals, which seem absolutely. to open themselves up for more interpretation. But surely it's about the text and what's there. Well, I bang on about that. It should always be about the text. I think, I think the problem with musical theatre is there's a lot of men, and I will say men because they are all men, um, who see it as a way to get rich quick because they look back at the 90s and those people did get rich. They got very rich very quickly. Cameron, Lloyd Webber, all the people who were associated with it made an awful lot of money out of musical theatre. I think what they don't acknowledge is what it takes to do a musical. And I think a lot of men who are directing musicals don't actually like them and don't actually understand them, which is why they misinterpret them. And they go, we have to do this and we have to do this. And you think, well, if you understood the genre, you would understand that that isn't the problem. That, that song is the problem. And you saying, well, let's set it in the 1950s in a brothel is not going to solve the inherent problem. Whereas Hal Prince knew what would solve the problem. I don't think the people who are doing it now have the passion for musicals to make them understand what's wrong to make it good, so they throw things at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They try and... and I think that's what Sondheim's saying. I mean, when you, you know, into the woods, oh, we're going to set it in post-apocalyptic Hiroshima. No. Why? Because you don't... You do that because you don't understand the text. Why don't you just understand the text? Go and learn how to direct. Or we're creating a look for it rather than telling a story. Or we're creating a look. Mm. And the problem happens... And there's also... I mean, we talked about this. I said that there are too many 
particularly young directors, and particularly in musicals, who engage with musical theatre, or who engage in directing in the same way they engage in Facebook. It's all about, look at me, look at me. It's not about the text. It's about, look what I've done to the text. And you go, but you don't need to do anything to the text. Into the Woods doesn't need anything placed on it. It's fine. I think that the problem with musical theatre becoming popular, actually not popular, populist, is that it attracts a brand of people who think they know how to do it, but they don't. What would you say to that little girl watching Evita at 13? <laughs> what would now, I say? No. I'd say it's never going to happen. Do it for 10 years, then get out. Right. Don't waste, don't waste all that time on it because you are wasting the time. It's not a... Uh, and I love musicals, you know I do. Yep. But it's not uh, an area of theatre that embraces women. So don't waste your time. Go and do something else. Grace Barnes has recently completed her PhD and has commenced her second book, a biography of Mayna Wiley, the Olympic swimmer who was a trailblazer for women's sport in Australia. Her first book is a reflection on the role of women in musical theatre. If musical theatre reflects prevailing societal attitudes, what does the modern musical tell us about the place of women in contemporary America, the UK and Australia? A fascinating read, posing much for consideration. Her Turn on Stage by Grace Barnes is available at all good booksellers and published by McFarland and Company.